Hey everyone, this is Victor Mercado and you're listening to Southwest Design Lab's podcast. And today we're coming to you from the Worlds of Words Library at the University of Arizona, located on the fourth floor of the College of Education. This is really a, a breathtaking space. It houses over 3,000 children and adolescent titles. It is open to the public and it is home to a special collection of original illustrations and first edition signed books. Uh, if you've never been here, you should definitely take the time one of these days to stop by, bring the kids, uh, just come by and, and spend an afternoon. We're very grateful to be able to podcast the show from this amazing space, which was clearly designed with the reader uh, and literature enthusiasts in mind, tons of books, lots of learning space, amazing glass walls, high ceilings. So this space really captures the imagination. And so does our, our guest today. I'd like to welcome Adam Rex, illustrator and author. His works and collaborations include Moon Day, Unlucky Charms, Frankenstein Takes a Cake, The Meaning of Smek Day, which was adapted by DreamWorks. That's right. Uh, into an animated motion picture, Home, uh, the Tuesday series with, with Neil Gaiman, one of my favorites, and tons of other works. In 2005, he received a Jack Goggin Award for Best Emerging Artist and is a regular at the Tucson Festival of Books. Adam Rex, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me, Victor. Great. Uh, Adam, I can imagine you feel right at home in this space. Oh, yeah, I really love it here. And and uh, it was, it's was it been nice to see this space kind of emerge and... and, and uh, be added to over the years so that it's really turned into a very inviting place to to sit with some some children's books um, I'd like to start with with the bio which is on your website adamrex.com and it's probably one of my favorites I think because it's just so sincere and I'm just gonna read a, a quick blurb from it you write that you're the middle child and that you're not the smart one you're not the cute one but you're the one who could draw t when you were putting that that bio together is it are, are you always thinking of audience first I think it's uh, it's you know kind of my natural writing style to some degree or another, but also I even when putting something as as utilitarian as a bio up on my website, I feel like it's still just another opportunity to to s sort of float my personality out there and and see if I you know if I get any interest. If you if you like. The first paragraph of my bio, you're probably going to like my books too. So, uh, you know, no unused uh, opportunities is, is, I guess, the way I think about it. It's the way I, I use Twitter and and Facebook as well. Um, I'm I'm usually just I'm trying to create. I guess I'm just trying to create content all the time. So even if I have to tweet something about how I'm just going to be at this or that place signing books, I still try to find a joke in there somewhere. Uh, it, it's probably a Probably like a middle child uh, <laughs> looking for attention kind of thing. I yeah. don't know what it is exactly, but um, so uh, so obviously you see you're the, you're the one who could draw. How, how has your career as an illustrator, as an artist, defined your life? Uh, it really it really has defined my life as early as as five years old. I I started to be recognized as the kid who could draw, and uh, I didn't necessarily have a whole lot else going for me as I grew up. Uh, you know, going through the public school system in Phoenix. So um, always having that to fall back on, always having that as a source of respect from from the other kids, uh, even if they didn't want to have anything to do with me in any other regard, uh, it was always it was always good for something. Uh, I I and I say five years old because it was at five years old that I I first overheard my brother, who was three years older, mm -hmm. uh, com complaining to our mom that it wasn't fair that Adam is, is younger and he can already draw better than me. And I didn't know that I could draw better than him. Uh, so I, I did know that he was better at sports and he was obviously smarter than I was because, you know, he was eight. Um, and so 
I thought, well, if he thinks that, then I'm just going to go ahead and keep drawing every day for the rest of my life, if, if only to spite him. So it really has been, I think, the defining thing of my life that, that I'm the kid that can draw. Mm-hmm. Um, that was going to really be my next question. I think in, I, I read in the, uh, at the, at the closing of, of Dirty Cowboy, you, you, you know, dedicate the book to mom and dad and you say, who paid for our lessons? Um, at what point in your, in your life did it become clear though, that this would be your craft and, and your career? I think from a very early age, I was saying I was going to be an artist when I grew up, even you know when I was young enough not to understand what that meant. And my parents didn't understand what that meant either. And one of the reasons I was thanking them in that way uh, was because as an adult, I came to understand that they were terrified you know, for most of my life that, that they had this kid who said that they were, he was going to be an artist. And they, they didn't know any artists, and, and th- they didn't have any friends who knew any artists. And... And I do think that art has this uh, odd position where because nobody knows artists, they, they really just can't imagine how this is a plausible scenario that anybody could grow up to be an artist. These people don't know any astronauts either, but, mm-hmm. they, but they know people have been to space. And they should also know that there is commercial art and other art around us constantly, but we don't really see it when we're not thinking about it. So, so I think my parents and and others they when they hear i'm going to be an artist they they literally can't imagine uh any evidence in their own lives that would support the idea that that was going to happen despite being surrounded by graphic design and art and 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 industrial design literally every moment of their lives Mm -hmm. so the fact that they my parents did not let me know that they were worried about me that just said good and and here's some art supplies for christmas and we're going to sign you up for these classes if you want to and always supported it and secretly hoped that i would develop more of an interest in architecture or something like that at a a later age is it's something that i really uh, appreciate that you know too many parents are probably trying to strip their kids of of these kinds of aspirations and and they didn't do any of that was there a point then when you finally, when you had this moment where you could tell your parents, look, uh, I made it, and where you, where they realized that, and you realized that, and, you know, the art lessons paid off? I think so. I think it came, it came early enough that they got to relax a little bit. I was still a, a student here at the, the U of A when I started to get my first professional work. I was taking a portfolio to the San Diego Comic-Con every year, and uh, I was sleeping in my car because I didn't have the money for a hotel room, which is something you could still do in downtown San Diego back in like 1995. Not anymore. You can't do it anymore. <laughs> I've, I've been back since, and there aren't there really aren't any places where you can park your car. Uh, but you know, back then there were these big lots where you could just uh, stuff a five dollar bill into a box and I remember those. and block out the windows and uh, sleep there at night and. You know, the climate was nice enough that you could get away f- with with that for a few days uh, and still be presentable. So, I would go to the the San Diego Comic Con. I would I would take a portfolio around, and I started getting a little bit of work that way from uh, like fantasy game companies producing stuff like Dungeons and Dragons and other other games and and Magic the Gathering, uh, as well as some other just weird early work from a variety of sources. Uh, some some local Tucson stuff too. Uh, in my I guess I would say early 20s, I was getting some work from Madden Media for some of their ma- magazines. But, mm-hmm. um, 
so you know i wasn't i wasn't getting rich off of it but they could see that it was regular work and it s didn't seem to be drying up so i th think starting in my very early 20s on they they sort of trusted that this would be okay and i could always teach a little on the side if i had to and it was your path it was my path and i did teach a little bit for a little while some figure drawing here and there but uh not any not anymore i just don't really have the time for it anymore uh, i'm sure you get this question all the time but at what point did you pivot or did you enter the world of children's literature it was something i always wanted to do uh well, always wanted to do meaning at the age of like 16, I decided this was one of the things I wanted to try. I started working at a Walden Books back when they were Walden Books. And I, I kind of fell in love with kids' books all over again after having not really, of course, looked at any for, for many years. But at this time, I had a much younger sister uh, to whom I was reading a lot of kids' books. And I was also working at this bookstore and, and seeing what was being published at the end of the 80s and into the early 90s. And <coughs> that was really... Uh, kind of a, a boon time for kids' literature, uh, for picture books, or these very painterly, lush picture books were being produced, and a lot of, a lot of books that, that were taking chances as well. There was a lot of money in the industry, so somebody like a John Sheska and Elaine Smith could get a, a book like The Stinky Cheese Man. And I remember that. Yeah, or The True Story of the Three Little Pigs, kind of weird uh, postmodern uh, sort of satires that might not have gotten published 10 years before were now getting published. And, and so that was the thing that I, I looked at th those people making those kinds of books. And that's what made me realize that maybe all of kids' literature was not some precious dollhouse, but, mm -hmm. that, but that maybe there was also like a, an unfinished basement under the dollhouse where you know, people just hung out and tried to crack each other up. And, and you know, maybe there was you know, room on there on their thrift store couch for me too and and uh, here you are and here i am so yeah. you know it's it still took a while after that but uh starting at that young age i i started trying to to write my own picture books and it you know took many many tries and many bad picture books before i kind of figured out what was bad about them and got rid of the bad stuff to get to the good stuff but but then i finally landed my first picture book as an illustrator in 2001 and uh that was the dirty cowboy which was published in 2003 mm -hmm. and then a couple books later i managed to to get somebody to to publish something that i had written as well it's funny you mentioned the dirty cheese man uh the the dirty cheese the stinky cheese man but i, I <coughs> guess it could have also been called the dirty cheese man yeah pretty uh, easily and i was reading your um the frankenstein takes the cake and and it, it kind of oddly reminded me of kind of the the not the preface, but just the, the, the feel of, of uh, Stinky Cheese Man. Um, I'm looking at it right now. It says, which is full of funny stuff and funny stuff like rotting heads and giant gorillas and, and zombies. So I, and as, you, as you were saying that, I just thought, huh, I, I think I've read that before somewhere. Yeah, both of my Frankenstein books have, have probably a pretty large debt to, to John Cheska and Lane Smith, um, maybe more than anybody else. And, and I think those two guys, uh, William Joyce... Uh, was another big deal to me uh, when I was first starting out and trying to figure out what kind of books I was going to be making. So uh, I, I owe a big debt to those guys, and I'm happy to call a couple of them friends now uh, as well. Um, it's it's kind of a fun community. Uh, picture book people and kids book people, we're all 
on the whole, really uh, supportive of, of each other. And I think we're just happy to, to hang out when we get to. We're all at the same book festival at the same time or whatever. And, and so um, it's nice to suddenly be surrounded by people who know what we're going through and uh, and yeah, what we're going through. It's not like I not like I push a boulder up a hill for a living, but you right. know what I mean. That it's a community. Yeah, we have a you know a lot of the same sort of things we're thinking about, the same struggles, the same good stuff, but we often don't get to really discuss it with anyone because we're all these weird self-employed people that work out of a home office and and don't uh, talk to our own audience all that much and don't get to meet other people who are doing what we're doing except it's special occasions mm-hmm. like the Tucson Festival of Books. I feel like there's a big emerging maker culture here in Tucson and, and I think now that there's more spaces downtown for people to, to work in, um, like CoLab or, or Cobra Connect. And, uh, before that, I think there are still, and I can imagine there are a lot of people that still work from home. I'm one of them. You know, you're one of them. What's it like, you know, to, to try to get things done when you're at home? I think I'm pretty good at it. I literally never watch TV unless I'm with someone else. I, I have developed this mindset, and I don't apply this to anyone else, but I, I just it feels a little sad to watch TV on my own, so I don't, don't do it. Uh, and I do have an off-site office as well. I keep a, an office in, uh, in a building a couple of blocks away from me that I can go to if I actually have to oil paint something or I, I'm doing something a little bit more involved where I don't maybe want it to be in close proximity to my three-year-old. But So I work at home, and I work at that office, and I'm not going to say I don't probably spend like waste a lot of time on the internet but i think i'd probably be doing that if i had a a job in an office somewhere too so uh i i think i've i've just sort of lucked into a a profession that allows me to get stuff done when i'm inspired to do it and keep strange hours and you know write feverishly while my kid is napping and definitely and and that kind of thing earlier before we started we were talking you know just uh on the side about <coughs> rules of, of kids literature and, and categories and, and censoring. I mean, it, as we just started talking, but um, I want to kind of pick up on that conversation a little bit. You've written all over the place. You've written for middle grades. You've written for younger audiences. You know, where do you see the, the industry moving? And uh, there is a little bit of an irony, right? Where you can have, you know, movies with explosions and death and blood and, and it's, you know, and somehow books are different. Yeah, yeah. What we were talking about was was just the, the sort of the the accepted wisdom in kids literature that uh, it, it, even things as strange as like you don't have an illustration on the cover of a book for teenagers. That's one of the ways you know it's a book for teenagers is it's going to have a photograph or it'll be purely typographical. If it has an illustration on it, it's a it's a middle grade book for kids from eight to twelve or nine to thirteen, unless it's a uh, genre book for adults, like a fantasy or sci-fi novel, uh, and yet you don't see, for the most part, any illustration on on non-genre literature for adults, just on horror, fantasy, sci-fi, and romance. Th- there's just all these strange uh, sort of mores that we've developed in our relationship to, to words juxtaposed with pictures and also just in our relationship with what what we think kids will actually read about in a, in a middle grade novel, uh, which is again a novel, you know, for, for kids around 10, it's, it's understood that your protagonist has to be a kid. 
mm-hmm. probably a kid about the same age as you assume your readership to be. Is it like a Jeff Kinney type of book? Or? Yeah, a Jeff Kinney type of book, a Harry Potter kind mm-hmm. of book. Uh, your, your assumed audience is an 11-year-old, and Harry Potter is an 11-year-old. And because that's a series that goes from year to year, it's, it's okay, all right, the kids will, even if they're still 11, maybe they'll read about a 12-year-old now. Maybe they'll read about a 13-year-old in book three. But y- you don't start out with a book about a 15-year-old and expect an 11-year-old kid to read it, which, why not? You know, th- what is this? Of course, 11-year-olds will want to read about older kids. Kids are obsessed with getting older and doing Absolutely. more things. And 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 in movies, we, we all know that that 11-year-old kid is going to go see... Uh, some Marvel blockbuster about adults uh, doing uh, semi-adult things. Maybe mm-hmm. there'll be a romance in that story. There's there's not going to be any kids anywhere, and yet uh, we trust that the 11-year-olds will go see that. I'm not necessarily campaigning that I should be able to write about adults, but it would be nice that if I have an idea for a story and it feels like a story for a middle-grade audience that I don't have to compromise it or just give up on it entirely if if it is for whatever reason integral to that story that it be about a 40 year old man or a 60 year old woman i mean one of my favorite uh kids movies is the incredibles which Mm -hmm. is a movie about a middle-aged man having a midlife crisis right uh, with superpowers but it is and there are a couple of kids in it but the, the kids are at best you know the the C-list players right. in that they're window dressing. Yeah, they are. They are not the the main protagonist by any measure. So. So yeah, that's what we were talking about earlier. Just yeah. these these strange rules that are imposed on kids' literature that don't seem to be imp- imposed on any other kind of storytelling. It's interesting you talk about you know um, we were talking about you know what are rules and in um, and I'm going to dovetail into the question shortly, but um, I definitely want to talk about some 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 of your process, but. Jules uh, Danielson has a blog on children's literature, yeah. and I think she featured you. It's uh, Seven Impossible <laughs> Things Before Breakfast. Yeah, it's a great blog. And, and back in 2013, I think she spoke with you, and somehow you, you two connected about you know, your process as you were working on, I think it was Moon Day. You know, what, what struck me about, uh, about Moon Day, and maybe this is just, you know, this is not the world that I typically occupy, but this idea that, that it seemed like the, the protagonist of the book, the child, was also both her and her parents were somehow working together to somehow bring it, you know, the book to, to a resolution. And I don't see that a lot in, in necessarily in children's books. It's almost like there's a certain level of independence that you have to give the child almost like a rite of passage, right? It, typical of Disney movies, right? You know, one of the parents has to, has to die in order for, you know, this. A lot of, a lot of parent death in kids, yeah. kids' stories, yeah. Anything you can do to get them off on their own and send them to a boarding school or have mom and dad get killed by a rhinoceros on page two, like right. an old doll would do or, or what have you. Yeah. Uh, was that on purpose that you wanted to integrate the family more? Or? I kind of like that idea more and more, especially with younger books for kids that age. And I guess here I am inventing my own rules about kids, but I, I do think that uh, the audience for that book, Moon Day, which was a picture book that was intended, you know, for five-year-olds or so, uh, that they're probably a little more um, open and willing to accept a story in which the the child and the parents are are friends working together where you know maybe that 13 year old kid doesn't understand why dad keeps hanging around in the background <laughs> of the story but but 
I do like the idea of more collaborative stories between kids and parents rather than the sort of adversarial relationship that a lot of kids stories like to it's almost like you're proving your street cred with this very crude kids rule grown-ups drool sort of attitude that right. like every breakfast cereal commercial that i've ever seen has uh you know for some reason that guy doesn't understand about apple jacks but you do right because you're a kid and but now you're goofy parents yeah so yeah i do like i, I do kind of like that idea and uh it, it just seemed right for that that story more than anything else i i am trying to approach every story that i come up with with a an, a very open attitude towards simply finding the best way to tell that one and doing what the story needs uh to have done which might mean uh, writing in an unfamiliar way or choosing a new illustration style that i haven't done before and sure. choosing a new medium it might even mean not illustrating it myself even if it is an illustrated story which is something i'm just starting something to new do for now. you right yeah uh, and we'll get to that and uh, i think so going back to to jules blog and you know she she mentioned in your blog that was really interesting your process right she talked about you know your proof of concept which was certainly new to me and then you know she shared some of your sketches and and even some pictures that you took of yourself I, and i didn't know if you took that picture of yourself uh, I can imagine maybe you took a picture of your wife and then mm -hmm. at some point you said you had to borrow a child, which was uh, really quite funny when you think about it. You, you know, you need a child. Yeah. Can you walk us through that process and what do you look for when you're out and about, you know, in the field? It's almost like you're working like like an art director, right? Trying to set a stage and, and trying to get. I think you really are. It's I think there's there's probably a lot of parallels between being the illustrator and or writer of a picture book and being a film director um, where you you are you're art directing the whole thing you're doing the set dressing you're you're choosing the lighting you're um you know you're sort of the the director of photography and you're kind of the actor too in a sense uh, may, maybe in a very literal sense uh like in moon day where i actually took photos of myself and 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 posed as the father in the book um because this was a I wouldn't say a photorealistic set of illustrations for this book, but it was a fairly realistic uh, uh, view of, of people and environments. Um, but also you're the director of the actors and, and whether you're, you're shooting reference of other people or you're just making them up whole cloth, you have to, as an illustrator, um, have that actor's sense of, of what is a uh, a good reaction for your characters to have visually to the, the events of the book. Right. And it can always be, it can be a little grotesque when you see a, uh, a kid's story where all of the, the characters are, are overreacting in, in a, you know, in a really cartoonish way in a book that does not have a cartoonish sensibility. You know, if, if that is off and, and you don't find that, that, that perfect balance, uh, in in your your characters then then it can really just tear the whole book down uh so yeah making a picture book you're all kind of doing a little of everything especially the ones in which i write myself i i am sometimes literally doing everything um maybe right up and right up to the, the typography as well so when i i start a picture book uh maybe i've written it in the case of moon day i wrote it uh i'm embarrassed to say that moon day started out as a dream uh, a dream in which I found the moon in my backyard and I climbed up on it and I explored and and that is the 
the totality of what my dream had to do with the finished pro product the moon day apart from just a general mood that that dream had that i tried to capture in the book otherwise there was some business with like cowboys and and buildings that were lying on their their sides and all these things that didn't make it into the, the, the picture book but so i started to write that one and uh just wasn't getting it right rewrote it rewrote it put it aside for a while picked it up a year later that book I worked on off and on for 10 or 12 years before I finally felt like it was either good enough or it, was, it wasn't going to get any better, and I wanted it to go out into the world. Wow. Now, I say that, uh, and I think that's one of those great mythologizing, self-aggrandizing things to say, like, this picture book, which is only 40 pages long, took me 12 years <laughs> to make. And then, there, you know, to be... Honest, I have to admit that this other picture book, I might have just gotten the idea for it and written it, written it in an afternoon. Right. And it basically came out right. And maybe later on, I changed seven words, and that's what got published. So, I've had, I've had this situation where a book takes me a day, and I've had this situation where a book takes me twelve years. And even the the ones that take me a day, I, I feel like I need to stress, especially when I go and visit schools and talk to kids, that it's kind of like a that old Picasso quote where. You know, I didn't do the the drawing in, in five minutes. I, I studied art and I practiced for 40 years and then I did a drawing in five minutes. Right. And I feel like that's the way it is with uh, picture book ideas too, where you're steeped in these stories. You read a lot of picture books. You're thinking about stories all the time. Um, you're trying to get your train your mind to, to be in that place where it's constantly pinging around and and riffing on things that you see and, and experiences that you have. And then when the idea finally comes to you, you might just be sitting at a stoplight and suddenly you get an idea for a picture book and it almost seems like you did no work at all. And everything clicks. Yeah, everything clicks. And I think it only clicks because you were doing the work you needed to, to set the stage f to have that thing click for, you know, the last 10 years, 20 years. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, uh, I... I write the book or I, I work on a book that has been written by somebody else. And I'm usually at that point, if I have a finished manuscript, I'm sort of marking it up and deciding, okay, this is a page, this is a page, maybe this is a two page spread, trying to work it all out to, to see if I can fit it into that, uh, that mold that picture books have where they're all about 32 or 40 pages long. Um, there's some rules about how long uh, these books can be. Mm -hmm. And then I do some very preliminary sketching, trying to figure out what the, the characters are going to look like. Um, sometimes that character pops in right away. Sometimes I have to draw the same character 50 times before I figure out what he or she looks like. Uh, and and then the, the illustrations of the book basically start out as very small thumbnail drawings where I, I usually will have one page in my sketchbook where I planned out the entire 40-page book or 32-page book. So it's a bunch of little boxes, like a right. A it's like an InDesign spread or something. Yeah, it is like an InDesign spread, uh, and uh, usually very, very crude sketches that um, nobody but me can tell what they are. Uh, but I'm just trying to figure out what's going to go on each page, uh, how big, small the elements are going to be, basic ideas about composition. And once I feel like I have it all planned out, that's when I start. Uh, refining each page into a nicer sketch and maybe a nicer sketch and once I've gotten some pretty tight sketches of the entire book then I put it together as nowadays I maybe put it together as a PDF right 
back in the old days, I was actually cutting and pasting and making physical books that I could send to my publisher so they could thumb through it. Uh, but I don't mind not doing that anymore. That was always a pain. And that, that's, that PDF is the f generally the first thing that I send off to my editor. She hasn't seen any of the, the, the earlier preliminary stuff. Right. She comes back with ideas. I change some things. Uh, maybe I got it just right the first time, but I, that's happened maybe once. Mm -hmm. And uh, and only after I have kind of the go-ahead to, on, on all of those sketches, do I actually start figuring out what the finished pieces are going to look like and maybe start working on those. And for me, that involves some pretty frequent reinvention of, of my my process do you feel like you realize i mean it's almost like there's this myth of and and there's some parallels i think with this like myth of genius where earlier you were talking about you know that the, the book moon day kind of sat around for you know let's say 10 years right but when did you discover that it was okay for something to incubate whereas right now i think there's this this notion i think in i think in the world of, of entrepreneurship and apps and, and different things that you have to have you know this one design and and it has to be you know really a breakthrough when in fact, you know, we know whether you were classically trained or whether you've been in an industry for long enough that you realize that, you know, those don't happen very often. Yeah, the thing that really just falls into the place and is like lightning, I think, is is pretty rare or it, at least it's rare for me. And and that's OK, because I I'm usually working on three or four th things at any given time and I can wait for that inspiration to come and keep busy while while I'm waiting. Mm -hmm. um, but. I used to think of it more like you just have to wait for the lightning to happen and you can't you don't know where to stand just because lightning hits you over there doesn't mean that that's a good place to stand. Right. And now I think of it more like a more like an archae archaeological dig maybe. You just have to sift through a lot of stuff and a, most of it is garbage and and 9 times out of 10 when you find something good you don't even notice that it's good until it's too late and it's gone and and you just really got to keep your eyes open because you're actually being bombarded with good ideas and and new notions and you're just not paying attention most of the time. Right. And I think that's what I mean by by training your mind to be in that open space where you see the idea when it comes around the mountain and you you're always you always have your catcher's mitt and you're always waiting for the next one and right. and you know even with that that frame of mind, I, I still feel like far too often something comes along, you you don't think about it hard enough, you just think, oh, that's not worthy. And then naturally, nine months later, uh, you hear somebody else has just signed up a, a book that has the exact same uh, concept behind it and realize, oh, maybe I should have done something with that. Yeah. But, oh, well. I think as innovators, we, we hate that. That happens to me all the time when somebody has an idea and I, say, oh, I thought about that, you know, three months ago. I um, was... Uh, halfway into a a young adult book about vampires when suddenly the vampire thing really blew up and and I you know not that I was innovating in any way shape or form by by doing vampire stuff to begin with um, nobody had been innovating with vampire stuff since the lost boys in 1987 or whatever right. that was but uh, but still I, I had this weird moment where I realized should I start really working hard on this vampire story or should I give up this vampire story because I don't I don't even know if I want to be part of this you don't want to be late to the party suddenly, yeah I didn't want to be late to the party but I didn't even really want to seem to be uh, taking advantage and, and gate crashing the party either I I 
I knew that no matter what now, half the people that saw this book were going to think, oh, Adam Rex saw what was happening and decided that you better hustle on a vampire story, huh? And that wasn't exactly the 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 story of that story but not that it mattered mattered anyway because like virtually nobody read that book so (laughs) uh all of my worries about whether i was cashing in where it was moot it was it was really really moot on that one and what was the title of that book that book is called fat vampire okay i did see that so so there you go like right right up front i was basically announcing that like here's a vampire story you're not going to like so it uh it didn't really go anywhere I think we're, we're constantly trying to see how others interact with the world. I, I know I do that all the time. I'm always watching people's reactions. I, I, I always have to fight this urge to when I go somewhere, I always think, wow, they could have done that better. Or this could have been better executed. I don't know if, if you have that, uh, if, if that oh, happens you should, often. You should talk to my wife. I, it, I'm probably unbearable when we're watching TV or movies and I'm like constantly pausing it and saying, you know how I would have written that <laughs> line uh, to make it 20% funnier is this. And she's, you know, smiles politely and waits for me to start the, the show back up again, but I'm insufferable. So, so along those lines, I'm glad we're, we're kindred spirits in that, uh, in that regard, Adam, but you know, as an illustrator, you're always looking for inspiration. I can imagine, what do you do when, what do you do when you just want to turn it off? Like, how do you find, you know, how do you go out there and just enjoy Tucson and enjoy, you know, the time with your family? I think maybe that's just a byproduct of having a three-year-old right now that, uh, like you never turn it off entirely, but there's definitely some times where just, you know, some pudding has been spilled and there's really nothing to think about right now, but like keeping him safe and cleaning up the pudding. And, and, uh, so I think if anything is weirdly has helped me turn off my impetus to constantly be inventing stories for children, it's a child and having an actual child in my life. Um, and is interrupting your flow. He, he interrupts it a little bit, but also like some stuff, you know, I, I wrote a, picture book i don't know if this one's ever going to get published but i wrote it just based on my experiences he's adopted so it was about it was uh basically about like the first five nights with him like realizing what his sleep habits were like and and getting a whole picture book manuscript out of it so um and so i expect him to be probably both the inspiration uh for and the buzzkill to all of my efforts, you know, going forward for several years now. Right. Uh, yeah. It, otherwise, it is a weirdly a thing that you don't turn off. And one of the, the, the strange things about this line of work is that there's there's never any clear demarcation to tell you that you're not working anymore. Right. I mean, technically, if you're just walking down Fourth Avenue thinking about a story, you're working. Um, if you're thinking about a story while your wife is trying to, to tell you something that happened to her that day, you're both a jerk and you're you're still at the office. Yeah. So I'm sure, you know, other nine to five jobs have that that problem, too. Uh, but but it's it's got to be a little a little blurrier. Sure. I can imagine. Uh, is there a perception? Do you think that that uh, I think that there's a perception that creative types, you know, reject structure and kind of unfazed by challenges? Uh, what type of physical and creative constraints do you run into from from uh, time to time? There's just the the restraints of of my my medium to begin with. That right. uh, I mean, you know, as we were discussing before, there are a lot of constraints to kids' books, and and uh, you know, as someone who I think is a little 
too obsessed with trying to go for the joke as much as possible when I'm writing. It can be, you know, heartbreaking when you you realize you've just thought of maybe the funniest thing you're ever going to think of, and it's just a little too adult, and you're you're never going to put it in this book. You're never going to to even get the chance. Uh, right, right. Um, so there are things like that. But otherwise, what do you mean? Well, I think you know maybe other, um, I guess other constraints that maybe creative constraints because I think a lot of times people think of, of creative types as having you know they really they're, there's no boundaries you can do anything you can illustrate anything um, you know I wish I could everything anything. lives in your head you know and, and at, at you know on command you can you know make anything yeah and anything. those and those people I think just generally they don't understand how much and this is gonna sound depressing but literally just how much every one of your endeavors falls so far short of of what was in your head and 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 people don't get that. Uh, I think you've seen this, um, and uh, I do this a lot at school visits. I often, uh, just as a little icebreaker, I'll draw something spontaneously for for audiences. I'll ask them to throw out uh, um, some ideas, um, just to you know show that I'm being honest, and I will draw what they suggest. And yeah, and uh, and sometimes I get the question at the end of my presentation that like, why did it take you? You said it took you four months to make this picture book. Why did it take you four months when that drawing took you three minutes? And I, and I say, well, because that drawing isn't very good. Yeah, but, you know, that kid doesn't see that. They, they just see that, like, there wasn't a picture of a cow before, and now there is one. That was a pretty and, sweet drawing. And it was a pretty fast cow drawing. So uh, I've lost my train of thought now. But what was the original question? I think we're talking about uh, constraints and, and, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, being able to put something together in a relatively short amount of time. And Yeah, I, I think it, it's just uh, when you see the end product, if, if, uh, if I've done a halfway decent job and you're just looking at it and thinking, you know, he just did exactly what he wanted to do. He, he has a limitless imagination that allowed him to create exactly what, you know, the, the precious dream he had in his heart. And I'm looking at it and thinking, wow, that spread didn't turn out very well and and that hand you've been hypercritical that yeah. hand well i don't even know if it's hypercritical it's just i mean it i think it's the appropriate am, amount of critical for someone who is actually doing this for a living and just trying to make the best books that he can you know just because most of my audience is never going to notice that you know that arm isn't drawn as well as it should be doesn't mean that you know maybe some portion of my audience that maybe has some of the same kind of training that I do is going to look at it and say, oh, Adam Rex screwed up that arm. So there, every book that goes out is, is a compromise, um, and nobody ever wants to hear that. Nobody ever wants to hear anything that diminishes in any way the, the magic that they assume happens right. on a regular basis. So I've gotten weird arguments with people where they, I, I, I explain to them that it takes me four months to do a picture book and they tell me that it doesn't i've literally had people tell me that i'm lying uh they don't want to believe that they want to believe that it was effortless uh, they don't want to to know that it took a really long time to get that drawing right or it was kind of painful working on this particular project yeah, they don't want to see what's behind the curtain they really don't and and i i assume that you know doctors don't have this problem where people say no it was not work you just you have a gift and you were born just one of those kids who knows how to to do heart surgery and 
and you didn't have to work at it, and I bet you didn't even go to school. Med school, schmed school. Yeah. And, and yet, this is what artists and writers get told all the time: is as that you didn't have to go to school for this. This is just, just your your special gift that that you've always been able to do. And and then I show them the the drawings that I made when I was four years old and ten years old and fifteen years old, and and hopefully they can see the progression then. But right, um, you you talk a little bit about magic, and, and I'm going to throw a big question out there, and. I know we're, we're running short on time and I want to be sensitive to that, Adam, but I remember the first time I read, um, you know, Garcia Marquez and some, some stuff out there in like magical realism, some stuff in fantasy. And I remember the feeling when I was reading it that, you know, it really required a certain suspension of disbelief. And, and when something really outrageous happened in, in the genre, I was like, what, like, what just happened? Like it, it didn't fit. There was some dissonance. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think with children, I feel like they almost expect, you know, magical things to happen in literature. Uh, and there's this sense of wonder and maybe glee when something totally unexpected happens. It's almost like, oh, I told you, like, I knew that was going to happen. What's it like to work in that space, right, where your job is to create those experiences for children? And it's funny you you mentioned uh, Garcia Marquez because I'm actually reading 100 Years of Solitude right now. And I think I've always sort of been drawn to that magical realism uh, maybe because I don't I maybe I've never given up on on that kind of of uh, sensibility that children's literature does have, and and that I think a lot of adult literature can hold on to. And there's a a real attempt w if it gets a little too magical to co sort of like ghettoize that literature into this is genre stuff, and it belongs in this different part of the bookstore. And and uh, and I I think that all fiction is already a heightened reality. Uh, even the most naturalistic fiction, everybody is still a little smarter, a little better spoken. Uh, stories have story to them, and they they already follow a structure and and have, you know, perhaps a point and and might have an overarching theme, and the character main character might have an arc, and all these things that we can't really count on having happen in real life. So if you, I feel like if you're already committed to the idea that that the that fiction is this sort of heightened level of reality then you know then why not why not have just a little bit of of true magic infused into that reality and in, in the way that somebody like a uh, gabriel garcia marquez does right um and there are some people that just don't like that uh there are some people who don't read fiction um there are some people who really only read nonfiction and and good you know fine they absolutely should not be uh, uh, pursuing that kind of stuff, and, and nobody should be trying to make them feel anything less than for not wanting that. That's uh, uh, John Sheska, I mentioned him already. He has uh, a group called Guys Read um, because there is this this sense, uh, real or not, that that our our boys aren't reading enough and that you don't really have to struggle to get girls to read but boys they have a hard time finding uh what they need and maybe it's because a lot of their their gatekeepers are women it's their their female teachers and librarians that are, are suggesting things to them and maybe they don't want to read about a 18th century governess or something maybe right they maybe they just really want uh statistics about world war ii fighter planes and and uh i think kids can pick up on these subtle cues and sometimes not so subtle where people are telling them that's not real reading. Right. Uh, you know, wanting to read that 
you know, that uh, book of military history is not as good as maybe wanting to read Pride and Prejudice. And, and uh, I think we need to, to get a little more um, egalitarian about, about books and, and what we consider, you know, great books for kids and great literature in general. Right. What's next for you? What's, uh, what's around the corner? Are you touring? Are you... Not doing really any touring right now. I don't do very much of it anymore now that uh, I have a toddler at home. Uh, do, you know, a little bit of uh, local stuff. But I am currently illustrating a, a new picture book with uh, my frequent collaborator, Mac Barnett. Uh, so I'm about halfway through illustrating that. And I don't know when that'll that'll probably be out, uh, I don't know, sometime late next year or something. Uh, I have a my first book as my first picture book as author that I did not illustrate will be coming out next spring. Uh, so I'm very excited about yeah. that. It's called School's First Day of School. It is about a brand new school that is nervous about its first day of children. And it's illustrated by Christian Robinson, who is just one of my illustration heroes and someone who really does work that is utterly nothing like like my work. So that that makes it exciting as well that that collaboration. Yeah, that he's really doing something that uh, honestly, if I tried to illustrate this book, I probably would have uh, attempted to rip off Christian's style anyway. So better to just have the real the real deal do it. Um, and what was your inspiration for that book? Uh, that was that one just started out as a joke. I was at a party. Uh, there was a lot of kids book people at this party and they were joking about a lot of the cliche picture books that you see. Um, and one of those is a child or bear or lizard or bunny or what have you is nervous about his or her first day of school and then she goes to school and turns out she was uh wrong to be nervous because she loves school and that's the end of the book and right. uh and so i leaned over to mac barnett as it happened and and just said a uh, school is nervous about his first day of children and i thought that was pretty funny and very clever too the next day i told my funny joke to my agent and he said you're going to write that that's going to be your next picture book and am i really i i don't i thought about it a little bit and realized well maybe i'm going to write that i maybe i maybe there is a story there and that was that was one of those books that a lot of picture book people don't like me to talk about because i sat down i wrote it in about two hours it's being published with, I think, maybe two words changed, and it just came out exactly right yeah. um, from the the very beginning. It was not that one of those 12-year processes. But it was also a book that I just thought, I'm not going to do a very good job of this if I illustrate it myself. And I was already looking for the opportunity to be on the other side of that process and see what it's like to be an author waiting for an illustrator to to, to illustrate their their cool. words and and to and to see those preliminary sketches and and uh and see what kind of direction he or she is taking it in so yeah well i'm excited to read that it sounds like it's like a lot of fun me too yeah so that, that's adam rex uh, author illustrator and school ethnographer now i guess yeah. um, adam thanks for your time thank you <laughs>